Wow, sorry, I disconnected. <laughs> okay, take two. Ready? It's okay. Yeah, ready. Okay. Oh my gosh. All right. <clears throat> sorry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hello, and welcome to Stats, Scrubs, and Squats. My name's Maria, and this here is a weekly podcast about life, healthcare, and fitness told through the microphone of an ABSN student, a former educator, and self-proclaimed gym queen. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a special guest named Chris Simon. He's a childhood friend from Royal Palm Beach, Florida, and he's a third-year medical student in Denver, Colorado. Hey, Chris. Welcome to Steph Scrubs and Squats. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, and I know that you're super busy, so I really do appreciate you taking time and getting on the show. So um, quick, <laughs> quick background before we started speaking. I asked Chris if he was ready to speak because he was taking an exam right before this, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and he, and he, I told him, like, hey, I sent you an email just telling you about, you know, kind of what we want to talk about. And he was like, okay, like, let me check my email. I'm on the floor with my cats. So you're in med school. We all know that that's not exactly the easiest thing to study. What is it like studying medicine while taking care of living things? Well, I mean, the nice thing about cats is they're extremely self-sufficient. I mean, we feed them twice a day. They take care of themselves. With We have like a water fountain for them. In terms of, yeah, actual like biological functions, yeah, they're totally fine taking care of themselves. Um, all they ask for from us other than food and water is a nice warm lap to sit on, eventually sometimes playing with uh, like strings and toys to keep them engaged and just cuddling with them at night sometimes. So yeah, kind of, they kind of make their own decisions on that. They're very independent. That's awesome. And how many cats yeah. do you have? We have two and oh. they're, very, they're both very sweet. They're both very amenable to being handled by people. Awesome. (laughs) Okay, so nice. So do you remember how we met? This was in the early 90s. Like, what was your earliest memory of me? So I remember, you know, like, our parents and family were, you know, we're we're all kind of in similar circles, because we were all in Royal Palm Beach. And I just remember, like, you know, we had many encounters from various parties of, you know, very, like, whoever our relatives or family friends were. And I think when I first met you and your sister, and you're also your older brother too, I think we were all at some party. I I think at some point, at least you or maybe your older sister might have been playing piano. And I just, you know, I think, you know, just being kids, you know, I was kind of shy growing up, but I don't know. I think we eventually probably talked at some point. (laughs) Um, But I'm pretty sure, um, like what I remember is I usually connected you with music, especially piano. So, and I kind of had some lessons, but nowhere near as technical or like really cool like you guys do. I just play pop music by ear. So, yeah. (laughs) Nice. And I actually also want to share, I think the earliest memory I have of you guys, I obviously met you um, the summer of first grade, I believe, or Uh, second grade in like 1994. But my my most vivid memory was of... Um, your younger brother, Jet Jet. Jet. Oh, God. Yeah. We, so I forget whose house it was, but we were all swimming in a pool. Probably Julie. <laughs> probably Julie's house, yeah. Yeah. But then mm. he got, like, this wasp bite, and he had, like, duck lips. Yes! Yes! Because he was he was spraying a hose at a freaking hive. That's why he did that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, but that's my most vivid memory. And then, like, growing up, to anyone who's listening, Chris was known as being the smart one. And, so, and also so um well we're both filipino and we both grew up in royal palm beach so there's a lot there are a lot of families um in that area who are filipino work in hospitals because it's what filipinos do yep. and and that's why we kind of like ran in the same circles but chris was always a smart one. Oh, chris he's so smart oh chris simon he's he's always a smart one and it was just like oh gosh <laughs> but no but but he was never like a jerk about it so Anyway, let's continue. Um, So tell me about your background. Why medicine? Did your parents, kind of like with what I said earlier, it's kind of what Filipinos do. Did they kind of guide you or persuade you to make this decision? So, you know, honestly, like, it was more, 
I think indirect than maybe in most circumstances, because a lot of parents will, yes, you have to be a doctor because so and so. But like nobody in my like immediate family or like even like the next level of relatives around me were physicians, but they were pl- they were plenty of nurses, you know, medical lab technicians, or they or and my dad worked in a hospital too as you know engineering. So like I think they knew like academically that I was I performed pretty well for you know for what like beyond what was like I guess some expectations of like I guess the average boy that sounds kind of weird but no uh, but anyway like I watched my mom put IVs on in my brother for fluids when he gets sick every winter because he had asthma and he just seemed to be more susceptible and I was fascinated with that and when I I loved the show ER and a lot of like medical shows that were a bit or dramas that were a lot more intense or like even like the or like watching surgeries. So I kind of just had that, you know, as an interest for a while. Um, my parents, you know, they wanted me to do well in school so I could go towards that, but they never really forced me, forced their hand on me to do so. Mm-hmm. You know, it was more just me pursuing an interest. And it took me a while to get there because quite frankly, I was not the best student in, in high school. And it took me a while to get even into college because I just had a lot of late growing up to do. <laughs> yeah, um, eventually I, I went into cardiovascular technology at first because I wanted to see how it would be like to work in the field. And I loved it. I was in it for seven years and doing helping cardiologists with angioplasty um, uh, and a lot of other procedures related to the cardiovascular system. And then that I, when I moved out here to Denver after getting residential status because of working and living here for a while, that's when I decided to finish my AA that I got, I mean, finish my bachelor's from via the AA I had in Florida. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, when I applied, I was kind of on a lark. I thought, I'm not going to make it right now, but this is a good practice run to see what the process is like. And mm-hmm. yeah, eventually getting in and you know, basically doing plan A after doing my plan B of being a CV tech for a while afterwards. So, yeah. Nice. Awesome. Thank you. And okay, so I know you did mention your schooling. Some of the listeners um, aren't from the United States. I was looking at the analytics mm-hmm. and I think that my listeners, I have a pretty sizable number in Spain, Italy, and then also in Peru and Latin America. Mm-hmm. And their med school starts the freshman year of college, like right after high school or whenever you decide to study and you finish, mm-hmm. you know, six or seven years later. Can you briefly explain the process here in the United States of being a physician of what is mm-hmm. medical school? Sure. And medical training, I can expand on that too. So, exactly. so um, you know, one is in, in the U.S., you are not required to have a scientific major like biology, chemistry, et cetera, biochemistry to get into medical school. You like I can tell you that I have um, colleagues who are super competent and they're going to be freaking amazing when they practice. But they are, were they were majoring in music production. They had backgrounds in Russian literature, English literature. Um, very much like artistic majors or humanities majors that were not scientific at all. But the requirement is that you take the core sciences that basically form the background of medical competency. And that would be like two semesters of general biology, general chemistry, general physics, um, at least one semester of biochemistry, one of organic chemistry. You need to have either up to statistics or Calc 1 in mathematics. Um, basically, you need to, and psychology as well. And mm-hmm. you have to be up to speed on your humanities. So like anything that's related for an undergraduate degree, like English or history, etc. Because you need to be prepared to take the MCAT, which is the medical comprehensive um, assessment test, like basically what gets you into entrance into a medical school. And mm-hmm. that covers pretty much all the subjects I just said. So then you'd also need to have a bachelor's degree for the most part. There's some programs in the Caribbean that don't require that. I don't know which ones exactly, but for the most part, you need a BS degree, no matter what it is, or BA, and take all those sciences, take the MCAT, get a good score. And once you get into med school, it's a four-year training. Um, it's four years of training within a school setting. So usually two years of in-school learning with lectures and exams, and then one year of being out in the clinic, which is what I'm doing right now in my third year. And then a fourth year that has more electives and like kind of more your own like tailored learning to, depending on what you want to get into in the future. Right. Within that process, there is for the 
um, for the U.S. system, there are three licensing exams called the U.S. MLE, uh, the U.S. MLE, which is the United States Medical Licensing Exam. There's, it's in three steps. I just took step one in June, which basically covers the first two years of medical school, which is, and it's testing you on the scientific background of all the clinical practice. So I'm, I'm being asked questions of like the pathophysiology from like a molecular level of like, say, heart disease or chromosomal anomalies related to certain genetic diseases. I'm getting tested on all of that. Then there is step two, which right now it, it might not be in two halves because it used to be, but COVID has changed one of them. But they're asking you more clinical practice questions, like how do you best manage the patient after you know this information about them? Mm -hmm. And then... Finally, and that's taken at the end of, um, like close to like when you're finishing med school. And then step three, which is the final step, is taken after your first year of residency, after you've graduated medical school. Oh, and, you're, okay. and that one, after that, as long as you don't fail your residency, you're pretty much fully licensed to practice, you know, more or less independently, as long as you're also licensed with whatever state you want to practice in. So yeah, it's a, at minimum, you know, we're talking four years of an undergraduate education, four years of medical school itself, and at least three years of some kind of residency with a lot of exams in between. So nice. at minimum 11 years of schooling. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, and so you did mention, you know, with residency, do you already kind of have an idea of what you might want to do? So third year is one of those years in which you know, we're being, ex we're being exposed to all of these different settings. So like I, I've already seen four, I spent four weeks in psychiatry and, f and I just finished four weeks in obstetrics and gynecology or OBGYN. And I went into this thinking I was going to do internal medicine. My background working in cardiovascular procedures made me think, you know, I'm going to care about the squishy bits that really <laughs> keep you alive, you know, physiologically speaking. So you know, internal medicine, as we call it. After seeing OB-GYN, it just became a subject to me that went from, why would I do this? Because I don't know much about it, and I don't care about babies and pregnancy and lady parts. <laughs> Which very, it's very crude. I, I won't say lady parts. I'll say biologically female parts. Yes. Um, but... After going through this, I'm realizing this is actually a really cool field, and I'm probably going to be spending the rest of this year having insights and moments where I'm going to start thinking, whatever I thought I was getting into at the beginning is now going to be a bit clouded, and I'm going to have to consider that a lot more than I ever used to because I'm seeing it for reals and not in a textbook. You know. Right. Yeah. No, totally. So I and, have no idea. <laughs> yeah, no, and I want to I do want to go back to that. I um one of the textbooks that we have with maternal newborn nursing by Durham by Durham and Chapman, I believe. The one of the things that really stuck out to me was this quote that they put that if you have if you have a if you have a really good female woman health system in your society, you will have equality for everyone. Because as you know, studying that women and children, especially like women of color, are the ones who are, like just the care that they receive is so disproportionate oh, to yeah. other women of other colors, just literally by the, the color of their skin. So mm -hmm. I will, we'll talk about that in a little bit also, but I think that's amazing that you are, you know, you have an interest in OB. So... Mm -hmm. Now that, you know, you're talking about med school in the process, tell me, if you can tell me, what were your expectations? And then what are the actual realities of med school? Mm -hmm. And even just medicine in general, can you, mm -hmm. can you just briefly talk about that? Sure. So, you know, again, having been working in the field, you know, alongside physicians for seven years prior to this, it gave me a lot of in deep insight into, like, what is this going to be like in terms of, like, the, the, the weight of the responsibility of like patient care in general. And what I can say is that, you know, being in med school, that the weight of that responsibility is no less lessened. If anything, it is heavier. And I thought not necessarily in a bad way, but just more like this is truly, you know, for better and sometimes for worse, a life changing responsibility to other people and for myself. Um, that has not changed. I will say that I have to study a whole lot more than I thought I was going to. Like, I knew it was going to be a lot of studying, but, oh, man, it is, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 
the way they told us in orientation was, you know, you're drinking from a water fountain in, in like your pre-college days. And then you're drinking from a high fire hydrant when you're working on undergrad. And when you get to med school, you are now drinking from a Pacific Ocean tsunami. And that's oh exactly what it feels like. And it gets, and you know, it's, you know, the only way, in my opinion, to cope with that, and I think a lot of people would agree, is that you have to have an attitude that you are always going to be, as long as you have breath, you are always going to be learning. If you don't have that, and you're not willing to, like, take in new information and improve practices and processes because evidence is showing that this is the way you should go, then being in healthcare, even if it's not necessarily being a physician, I don't think that's the right place for, for someone who doesn't want to learn. So. Right. You know, that is what I've noticed. It's like there's a ton of learning, both learning of like established things and learning of cutting edge new things because we're constantly trying to make sure that evidence is showing that we are treating our patients the best we can and that change that can change things within a year. You know, I, I could talk about how this is changing with like COVID, for instance, but yeah, it's that is something that I've definitely noticed and it's challenged my, even challenged my expectations of just how much you have to be a learner and a willing lover of learning. Yeah. Yes, I can. <laughs> I can totally relate to that. Yeah, no, that was definitely insightful. And thank you. I did. I learned some things that you also mentioned there and the fire hydrant, no, the water fountain fire hydrant, Pacific ocean tsunami. That uh-huh. was, that was perfect. That's, that was just like very visual. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it does feel like that. Oh yeah. yeah. And um, so now that you talked about, you know, you talked about getting into school, realities of school. If everyone knows, I've already mentioned previously in an episode that I did decide on a second career in my thirties, mm-hmm. and that and you also. So you know, we Chris and I are basically like the same age. We graduated high school the same year. All of that. What do you think people should know about the process and experience of medical school as a second or even third or later career, especially as someone who's not in their 20s? Like, we're in Mm -hmm. our 30s. You're in your 30s. Like, what Mm -hmm. is that like for someone in their 30s or later? Because you're an adult. Like, mom and dad are not taking care of you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what I want to say to that is it, it gives you some advantages. You know, if you have been, like, in a steady career, you know, while, you know, others are just starting, like, more schooling, like, right after finishing their undergraduate education, I think that it gives you an edge in terms of just basic people skills or coping, dealing skills with the, uh, you know, the things that happen to adults, the challenges and the, sometimes the troubles, you know, all of the difficulties that we have as adults, we, we in our 30s now, hopefully, (laughs) I can speak, uh, I, I don't know how well I can speak for everyone, but I'm assuming for us, we can say that we have been through stuff (laughs) and we know how to deal with stuff. And that stuff does not stop when you get to med school, whether you're in your 20s or you're like us in our 30s. So that can can give you an edge. You know, we we probably know how to take care of ourselves at home. That's a good thing. One, One challenge is to me, at least, and I think a lot of my classmates have told me this too, who are in my same like age range, it's a feeling of belonging. You're in a place where you've got a lot of people who have just come out of undergrad and they're like in their early 20s. Like the average age of a med student in the U.S. is about like 24, 25. And I am at least eight years older than that now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a bit to reckon with when you think, man, I feel just kind of old to be here. But you know what? That gives us perspectives. The, the value in that is there, that's, it's a diversity of experience. You know, we have seen things and we can deal with things and see things through a lens that the younger cohort simply has not. And I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing or like negative or positive, but it's just a valued difference. Um, another thing too is, uh, um, is dealing with not having an income again. That is a very major mental challenge to undertake and realizing now all of the money I'm getting is debt. I can sympathize with that. Oh, sorry. Let me, let me pause over there real quick. Sure. Education in the United States, med school, one of the longest type of education or careers someone can get into. What's the average that your school is charging for medical school? Okay. So I can, (laughs) uh, for, for my school in particular, 
In-state tuition, and this does not include living expenses, of course, yes. is about 40 grand. If you are out of state, it's about 65 grand. And I've A looked year? at- Yes, this is yearly. Mm -hmm. Yes. So again, this is purely for school, not your gas, <laughs> not your rent, food, etc. And you have to take, I take out loans to cover those things. So, you know, truly the average indebtedness of most American med students is about a quarter mil after the end of those four years. And that is a serious thing to think about before getting into it. And I made my peace with that a long time ago because I, for me, I thought that that, be, that was not going to overshadow what I want to do. You know, right. But if you have to really think of spend time thinking about that before undertaking this, because it's a very real issue that will last longer than your medical education and training, you know, right. yeah. for the most part, you know, at least if, unless things change, which I'm crossing my fingers for change, of course. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's it's a lot. People, a lot oh, of yeah. people don't believe that people in the United States are in debt just for undergrad, like, you know, to have their bachelor's mm -hmm. degree. Yeah. They're, they're in debt for anywhere from fifty to 60000 When mm -hmm. they want to go into a specialized program or a private school, that doubles. And then you're oh, yeah. looking at advanced degrees, like being a physician, a vet, uh, anything, a mm -hmm. lawyer, then you're mm -hmm. looking at the six-digit numbers. So oh, yeah. it's definitely something very, very serious. Mm -hmm. So we're going to change gears a little bit, and we're going to talk about what's happening in the world and also maybe interprofessional um, communication and interactions that you're going to have to deal with once you are a physician, but I guess also mm -hmm. while you're in your rotations. Mm -hmm. So everyone knows, and I've mentioned this before, that I'm currently in an ABSN program, and we're always talking about you know interactions with providers. And here in the United States, a provider is not just an MD, a physician. You also have PAs, a physician assistants. You also have nurse practitioners. There's, it's not just a simple physician, MD, that's the only person that's giving orders mm -hmm. and prescribing here in the mm -hmm. United States. So this is what I want to talk about. There's a, there was a question that was written by Barbara Lewis and she founded Jones Bill of Rights. Um, Jones Bill of Rights was created because when Barbara Lewis's sister, whose name was Joan, was in the ICU for about a week, she went from normal or stable, I should say, she went from stable talking, communicating to she was dead within a week. And, oh, she, and now, yeah, so now with Joan's Bill of Rights is an organization talking about the patient patient's rights and safety. And a big one is the professionals working within healthcare and medicine and how they interact and her experience. Mm -hmm. So the question is, and this was in an interview in the University of Utah, are physicians unknowingly compromising the quality of care by discouraging nurse input in the process? What do you think? What have you seen? So, okay. So I, what I can, like, what I've, having spent a lot of years on the other side as an allied healthcare professional, you know, I've had great experiences and also poor experiences working with cardiologists. And the best experiences I had were working with cardiologists who believed that we were all valued members of a team, that we all had eyes, that we all had experience, we all had senses to relay reliable information to best treat their patient. And I think what that comes from is, a, a, what is from changing the culture of physician practice to move it out of the, like, or at least try to mitigate the effects of such a hierarchical system of healthcare in terms of like, you know, schooling, um, you know, like who's got the power to give orders and whatnot. Yes, yes, that hierarchy is going to exist, but it doesn't have to exist in your attitudes towards other people. So I, in my medical training so far, we actually have what's called I, um, IPE or interprofessional education where um, once a week, we are working with nurses, nursing students, dental students, PA students, um, pharmacy students, et cetera, like uh, along the gamut of allied of like of healthcare, you know, all the roles in a healthcare system. And we're working through things through scenarios. Some of them are just team building exercises that are, in my opinion, a little silly, like puzzle solving. But a lot of them are more 
closer, a lot closer to real life patient care scenarios where how best should you communicate? You know, what are the, what are the more effective and beneficial attitudes to have when you're interacting with others? You know, like, and, you know, a, a, a major theme is no matter who you are, everyone has insight into what is going on with a patient and you should listen to them. And for me, I think my background and that experience of that kind of education, it's making me make sure that I don't have this attitude that makes people afraid to speak up because I'm all that or something. That, that would be the, the worst personality trait, in my opinion, to have as a practitioner of medicine. Um, I've watched that um, as it relates to, like, say, airplane safety. The best way to maintain, like, you know, safety checks is to make sure that no one ever feels afraid to speak out when something is wrong for fear of retribution from someone higher up because, you know, they think they know more than you do. Because, right. again, we all have senses. We all have experience. We all are, you know, are intelligent people. And we all, above all, we care about the patient. So as long as we're all on the same page of all those things, you know, I believe that that's, that's this awful scenario that, you know, led to this Bill of Rights you know, I think it's important that we have this document now and this organization fighting for patient safety and rights. Um, I just wish we didn't have to go through that if only, you know, in the context of your question, you know, nursing input. Nurses, right. nurse, you know, nurses are the front line of patient care, like, um, and especially within a hospital or intensive care setting. You know, they are the ones who are there way more than the doctor is. And I've even read that, you know, one good, one, one good, um, nurse is worth 10 good doctors and which is to say that honestly if you are right there all the time you are the one that we should be listening to when it comes to what's going on with the patient right and you know so like that's like i've seen it when it's not like that and yeah bad things have happened because they didn't listen to the nurse or the tech saying hey this you know this parameter on their like ventilator is a little off or hey their ekg looks a little funky etc if when physicians don't hear those things, then yeah, bad things are going to happen. Right. And I, I, yeah. I want to make sure to take that into my own future practice, just drawing on a, from a place of humility. And, uh, you know, that, that's what I think it really should be. Yeah. And, and um, I remember my first semester, one of the discussions that we had to do for professional nursing was um, there was a quote and it was nurses are the eyes and, and he and ears of doctors and it's you know like we just like you guys have your physical examinations we have our mm -hmm. physical examinations and assessments as well oh yeah and i, d I definitely think that if you want great health care and med and patient great patient outcome you do need to have a really good working mm -hmm. relationship with these two and i also wanted to add to those who are listening that aren't sure or aren't are unclear of what allied health is. So by definition, allied health may be defined as those health professions that are distinct from medicine and nursing. It's something that is really big here in the United States. And that definition is from the Association of Schools Advancing Health Professions. So Chris mentioned some and they can be techs in the hospital, dental hygienists, dietitians, um, all the different types of medical technologists, physical therapists, respiratory therapists, and speech language, speech language pathologists, as an example. So mm -hmm. wanted to clear that one up. And so, yeah, so moving right along, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I think I've heard every person on the news and public radio uh, <laughs> say that phrase. We're in the middle of a pandemic. What do you think, um, how do you think this is going to affect future medical and healthcare education and practice? Have you seen anything in your curriculum change? Because I know I've, oh, I've yeah. started seeing COVID-19 samples in our case studies and patients. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. a few, it's, this is just not even a year now, but it's already mm -hmm. in the curriculum. So, and that has also been starting to weave into ours too. Um, like just knowing what is known about it now, what are the best management practices? Um, but besides COVID itself, we are expanding a lot more in teaching how to do effective telemedicine. Yes. And oh my gosh. Is, yes. It's absolutely huge now. And for, be for better and for worse, telemedicine is not only here to stay, but it is going to expand. And there are plenty of benefits to it because, you know, if a patient is like in a far, ac like far out of access to, you know, their care services, if it's 
like literally like too far to drive, or maybe they're too infirm to get up, or they're afraid of like passing this around. You know, a phone call with an with most phones today have a, an okay enough camera and microphone, you know, and audio like to speak with someone via webcam. Yes. And I've actually used the services myself for um, for person full disclosure for some mental health counseling related to like pre-step one anxiety through a phone and the interaction was fine of course there are still challenges that we have to learn like how do we conduct a physical exam through <laughs> you know through distance through the internet pretty much and we're learning how to communicate to patients what we want them to do like how to like to instruct them to palpate or perform some kind of function that we can visually see or add, ask them how they feel. Yeah, there's a, so like telemedicine is a really huge thing. Another big thing that I learned from one of my former coworkers, um, and she's actually a great friend of mine, and I met her at, um, I met her up with her again at my last rotation site. She was telling me how things are constantly changing in the ICU with how we manage ARDS, which is also called acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is one of the major, major like out, um, um, symptoms of COVID when it becomes severe. Right. And things like that are changing the way we approach ventilation. You know, that, that's like in a much more like specific sense related to COVID. And, you know, I also think that there, like, in a more socio-political sense, we're having a lot more conversations about what is it about insurance, our current insurance model in the US? Like, what is worth uh. <laughs> saving about that? Do we need to change that? I am very, me personally, you know, I am very much a, in favor of a more universal or single payer healthcare system. Yes, and yes, I think yes. That, and I think that COVID is going to bring out a lot more conversations related to that. And it, it's my personal hope that we keep moving towards that because the current model, COVID has not, it, like, we didn't need COVID to show that that's a failure. We just needed COVID to, show, to exacerbate the yes. failure current system not to get too political to your listeners but no no this is but like yeah and um I actually remember so I I was living in Spain for several years and even though I was posting things on Facebook and Instagram I wasn't really looking at what people were posting or whatnot and I still remember the day my sister told me through whatsapp so i was still in spain she was like did you realize that chris was so woke and i was like what and i was just like wait what and i started looking i was like oh my gosh like why did we not maintain contact after everyone <laughs> moved away from college because <sighs> it's and it's something that i've been having to really understand and kind of like deal with and manage that i'm realizing that i always thought that you know, yes, we grew up in a place in South Florida that, you know, we went to an elementary school that was majority white. And then I went to a high school that was majority white. And it is a place that, you know, it's it's a nice, mm-hmm. quote unquote, nice, comfortable place to live. Um, at the same time, though, I, I thought everyone had more like liberal views that a lot of people in our circle and like our family members and friends of the family a lot of them worked in a medical setting and i thought that that's mm-hmm. what they wanted for everyone and it's really shocking oh yeah now seeing that and so when my sister posted that i was just like let me snoop a little bit and i was like yes chris no so yeah do not worry about being political which is kind of in the next question uh-huh. it's a two-parter so you can uh-huh. kind of answer however you want so um in the context of recent reckonings with systemic racism in American institutions, can you tell me what you've seen in terms of progress within medicine towards justice and equity? I personally have seen that in my university when, when, the, when everything was happening around, maybe it was probably about a month ago, right? Mm-hmm. When I, for, I forget when, the, when news hit about George Floyd, I remember, and yeah. people, the when the protests started, when started, Probably more like two months ago, yeah. Was yeah. it two? Oh my gosh! I think it was I the have... end, of, the very end of May. That's why. So we're approaching two months. Yeah. I'm yeah. Sorry. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no. No. So, um, yeah, I'm losing concept of time sometimes here. Oh yeah. In here. this era of COVID, but and I remember when protests started happening. I remember being like, finally, finally, like mm-hmm. people are doing this. But at the same time, people who would have never thought would say things like, 
oh so like why now it's always been like this so like why are they why are mm-hmm. they why are they rioting why are they protesting why are they doing this and saying i don't know it was just really odd like when are they gonna stop when is it everyone is everyone gonna be offended by everything mm-hmm. so that's part one of the question part two and i know you've been really open about this and i did ask for permission if i can ask oh, this i also would like to know um if you can tell me about your experience about being a person of color in medicine and also being a vocal and open member of the lgbt community okay so for your first question you know i wanted to i remembered reading that the american medical association or the ama you know they actually their board of trustees actually made a statement about racism and police brutality. And they basically, in their statement, they are recognizing that racism in its systemic, structural, institutional, and interpersonal forms is an urgent threat to public health, the advancement of health equity, and a barrier to excellence in the delivery of medical care, like first and foremost. And they have a few other things. They have a few other things in their declarations. And, you know, it's very heartening, you know, for, for me and a lot of, and, definitely my cohort who is now more becoming more and more savvy and like you know more or less woke if you want to say to like what's going on in the world and how it impacts medical practice and you know from my own medical education from what I've seen you know students and it really comes from student experiences we they have been pushing the um, they've been at the forefront of trying to change at least my school's medical curriculum to include more things, more, more discussions about race issues and how that affects outcomes. And also, and also, um, like even issues, not just as being a patient, but even as a medical student, the racism that can, uh, that can occur within the context of medical education. Um, I happen to be, I've, I've participated in events with my school's chapter of an organization called White Coats for Black Lives. And, you know, every December, in commemoration of the um, of the Thirteenth Amendment, which abolished slavery, but not, didn't solve everything, of course. But you know, we have a die-in, and we 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 are talking of we are basically chanting things about the issues that you know black people in America deal with, whether it's being you know accosted by police, getting shot up for no reason, without any cause, and also like the fact that you were bringing up like you know, issues of black women of color, you know, I, having come from OBGYN, we are, re- we are continuing to reckon with the fact that the, who is considered the father of modern OBGYN procedures and practice, yep. Dr. Sims, we are, we are, you know, we are recognizing that he may have been the one to do some of these things, but at the same time, he did this through painful procedures inflicted upon innocent black women without any anesthesia because he believed in the idea, the insane notion that black people do not experience pain the way that white people do. <laughs> and that is something that, you know, it's, it's not, it, it's, it sounds so absurd, but that is still in practice, in the echoes of that still happen today because black pain is very often not as well addressed as white pain is in the context of medicine. Yes. Not. It's not. It's not just that we. Uh, um, and I noticed this when I was um, a student of cardiovascular technology. When I had to rotate into a pulmonary functions testing lab, I didn't have a good answer for why it is that when we do pulmonary functions testing, which is testing your lung function, why is it we have different numbers depending on if you are white or if you are yes. Asian or if you are um, or if you are black, and there is some that the, the little things like that, you know. I, those those are like little things that I don't think we have the best answers for today, and we're tr- we need to reckon with them more. Like, what is the rationale for still having some of this, you know, some of this ingrained in our practice? Even yeah. as a, you know, we are like within um, medical education, we have been, and with testing questions, there are a lot of questions where sometimes the answer can be as simple as seeing where did this person emigrate from, and that's a big problem right there. That determines like best answers for treatment. Um, I could really go on in terms of at least like little like medical, like, like medical information that we study from. But, um, you know, I, I think the bet like those are the disappointing bits, I would say, but the promising bits is just knowing that my generation and my cohort and hopefully others coming after us are more and more being attuned to what is really going on. And to answer right. your question, 
about being, you know, openly gay and also being, you know, being in this field, you know, there, it's, it really helped me personally to know that one of the finest, like, like teachers and educators in my school, he's an openly gay pediatric psychiatrist. And he also happens to be my like advisory college advisor. And he's, you know, he like seeing people like that in that position and being very, very like well, well regarded and, you know, just awesome to be with. That's, that, that really helps my experience be more open about it, you know? And yes. it's, it's thing for me to aspire to being a member of that community. You know, I, I know that it's, there's going to be challenges ahead, you know, taking care of patients who might see the rainbow, the progress pin on my lanyard, and maybe they might make some remark, but I'm also going to remember that in this moment, I'm going to be taking care of them and I'm making that decision so that they can see that, you know, this is not affecting my ability to practice, you know? Yes, yes, yes. You know, but I actually, yeah, just to, just to let you know, I do openly have a rainbow pin on, that also has the trans flag, like the trans colors, as well as uh, black and brown stripes for, you know, minorities of color. I have that openly displayed and I'm sometimes I want, I want to see how that goes. I'm just curious, you know, <laughs> um, to add to that. Actually, I went to Philadelphia. I have a friend who's studying at the, I don't know if it's, yeah, it's, it's PCOM, the college of osteopathic medicine. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And when I visited her, it was um, pride week and the ending of pride week, they had like this huge pride day. So obviously we were there and they were giving away a bunch of like you know stickers tattoos and everything and i was like oh my gosh this is amazing so i put one on my planner <laughs> i put one on my suitcase and i've noticed that when i'm carrying that little planner that's little tiny black book with a sticker on the public transportation in philadelphia with a huge rainbow someone actually was like oh so like are you gay bye and i was and i said i'm not but I do mm -hmm. support individuals mm -hmm. who who are, and that's why I have the sticker. And she was, and she was so confused mm. that a heterosexual person would have that sticker. Mm -hmm. And so I love that you told me that. I think that's amazing. And also with with what you were going, what you're saying earlier, in my one of one of my proudest moments of studying again as a second career person or whatever you want to call it is mm -hmm. that I feel like in my undergrad I was taught by these old white dudes at UF and I had mm -hmm. two teachers in all of my undergrad years that were people of color Dr. Judy Anderson and Dr. I can't remember her name now but <laughs> she they were the only two they were the only two people of color that taught me at University of Florida when I was mm -hmm. studying anthropology now, the people are like, I, and it was, this, it was something that I noticed immediately because the faculty at my school, we have two black women who are the main professors for labs and clinicals. And the director of our program is an openly, she's an open gay man. And I love it. It's mm -hmm. something that I think we really, really need because I never had that experience. And I did my prereqs in a small town in East Texas. I did all of my science oh, prereqs boy. here. I had none. And so imagine like coming from Spain, predominantly white. I was, I was always the only non-European descent person in so many circles. And mm. then coming to East Texas. And then all of a sudden being back in South Florida where two black women were teaching me. And then it was just, it's something that I never thought I was going to experience, which is amazing because when you go to a, when you go to a hospital, you do get that really good mix. But I feel like in upper education, sometimes you don't really see that. And I do see that changing now. So that's a really, really great point. And last but not least, Chris Simon, is there anything else you want people to know about you that maybe not everyone knows? And I also want to know about any side hustles, any side hobbies and things that you are working on, passion projects, if you will. Oh, okay. Well, uh, it's funny. The first part of your question was also a question I had in one of my small groups <laughs> that were regarding like our, uh, our, just our experiences out on rotations. And I didn't have, I felt like I didn't have a great answer for that because I literally only said, 
at this moment, the one thing I need you to know about me is if we've ever talked and we clicked, I, I will get back to you eventually. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> that sounds awful. It sounds so like nondescript, but, um, but I think related to that, though, what I can say is, you know, I might be in my own head. You might think I'm in my own headspace if you see me like it's like in real life. And sometimes I'm going to be, but I do notice you. And I promise I am also still thinking about you. That's like, that's like the best thing I could probably come up with right now. Um, I'm not very good at those kinds of questions. No. As far as uh, side hustles or side hobbies, um, you know, what really keeps me sane is the fact that we, in my, the house that I'm living in right now with my partner of the past five years, um, I have a piano, a guitar, a ukulele, a bass, <sighs> drum set, um, a melodica, and I have a, a singing saw as well. So I, and I have a ton of guitar pedals. So like, I like to make noise to blow off steam and I like to loop things and see what it's like to like, you know, kind of do very, very amateur rough, like little recordings of my, with myself doing that stuff. And also when, now that I, like whenever I have the time, I do love to cook lots of things. And actually during the initial stages of Colorado being shut down, I tried making dishes that I really wanted to eat, but have don't like have never made before and i learned how to make like sag paneer and really oh good God. like <laughs> and amazing. like and like greek pastizio and like i try to find like a lot of things like i've never made this before let's let's try it you know so I, and most of the time i can say it's mostly successful mostly um, other times it's fallen on my face but and also like being in colorado it's really hard not to get out and just be amongst nature so those are like the other I'd say like the biggest things really be music, food, and like hiking whenever I have the time and energy to do so. But oh yeah. my gosh, no, but I love that you said that about you know music, as you know, like I love music. I have yeah. during um the early days of lockdown, I also I actually bought a tenor ukulele. Oh. I had a soprano Ooh. before and I have a tenor. Oh, it's beautiful. And actually, um, side note the intro and the outro that's actually me playing the ukulele so (laughs) when you guys listen to to, that that's actually me please listen out for those arpeggios because that's totally me and Mm -hmm. um and cooking so um yeah it was weird because when I when I came back here you know I was living at my sister's house and then I would go to my parents house and we'd always have Filipino food but being here back in lockdown I just wanted Filipino food so Mm -hmm. I actually have just been making varieties of filipino food vietnamese food japanese korean just like a mix Mm -hmm. of any Mm -hmm. asian southeast asian dishes because Mm -hmm. it feels so homey to me it's like being back you know home with my family so that's what i I really like i have to recommend um if you've not done it before look up a recipe to make taiwanese fried chicken it is so good like i don't (laughs) know if you like fried chicken i do like fried chicken i haven't had it in a while but that sounds really good it's got such a cool flavor because of the fact that there is fermented soybean curd in the marinade for the chicken. And when you finish frying it, you finish frying it with sweet Thai basil. And it just makes it that combination of pungency and like fresh aromatics. It is um, absolutely an amazing fried dish. You have to try it. <laughs> oh my gosh. That sounds really, really good. Yeah. And okay, <laughs> quick question also to the end because i always put usually a quote that i like at the end of the episode is there a quote that you like or that you live by that you think about and recite or meditate on or reflect on so um hold on i just need to make sure i get this right and i (laughs) go ahead go ahead (laughs) but um uh when I was in undergrad, um, I also minored in ethics in addition to like majoring in integrated bio- biology. But um, when I took ethics, I, also, I, t- I took a course in existentialism and I really fell in love with Simone de Beauvoir, who was like an ex- existentialist and also a huge feminist. Um, and she said, one of my favorite quotes from her that I try to go by or, you know, kind of as a guiding philosophy is, I'm incapable incapable of conceiving infinity and yet i do not accept finity which is to say that you know like i cannot fathom like the grandness of like what we live in in terms of a universal sense but also just like the sea of ideas and at the Mm -hmm. same time i refuse to accept any constraint in trying to learn all of it so 
or experience all of it or, you know, experience that with it, whether it's ideas or people, you know? So that's kind of, that's kind of the quote I'm going to give you. Yeah, that is it. I like that. No, no, no. I really, really like that. It's really, it's, it's not, it's not limiting at all. And I love, I love that. That's a really Mm -hmm. good one. People, Mm -hmm. I think, and I think you've seen this also, like people love to set limits. They're not even noticing that when they say certain things like, oh, that's too hard. Oh, I can't do that. It's really limiting. And with that, it's, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you Uh for sharing. Uh Yeah. So thank you for this, listening to this episode. Let me repeat that. I'm going to cut that out. It's okay. (laughs) You say bye too. Uh Thank you for listening to this episode with Chris my childhood friend from South Florida. Chris, thanks for having... Oh, my God. <laughs> One more time. I'm just going to make it more natural. I'm not reading anything for it. I'm just going to, like, whatever. Okay. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode, Chris. Thank you, again, for taking time out of your day. Congratulations on your exam that you just did earlier. I hope you enjoyed it. I've never... this. You're my first guest, so I'm happy that it was you. And oh, thank wow. you for... Yeah, you're, you're my first guest. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for shedding light on, you know, in the world of medicine and as a medical student. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I really enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> Yay. Okay, bye. <laughs> bye, everyone. Bye. Huh, that's awesome. I decided not to cut out the awkwardness of my closure of that conversation with Chris. So the world can know how awkward I am in real life and when I'm talking to people. It's amazing. I was talking to Chris also via text a few days after we recorded that episode or that conversation podcast, whatever you want to call it, after we had a conversation. <laughs> and he wanted to share the, the full quote with me that he mentioned in the episode. And that is, I am incapable of conceiving infinity and yet I do not accept finity. I want this adventure that is the context of my life to go on without end. I hope everyone has a great week. Send me an email or Instagram, whatever. Hugs and kisses. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I find joy in making it. I wish you, dear listener, one thing, that the universe grants you serenity to accept the things you cannot change, courage to change the things you can, and wisdom to know the difference. Until next time. God, why do I keep making that mistake?